Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. You have a kind of, uh, what, what, what look would I describe this as? The shirt is interesting. Let's see. Um, it's green. It's green. Is it a Pendleton? I don't think it's a Pendleton. So it's a green button down for everyone who's not who's not with us in uh, video, but is only with us in uh, audio. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dan. And I don't, I'm not picking on you, Matt, but it has a kind of like kid whose outfit was picked out for him look probably probably my wife bought this for me actually yeah dan uh, am i am i picking up i don't think i'm actually describing it well but well uh, it's i can only say what why i thought to why i thought it was a pendleton i was always given these pendleton right. panels and it definitely reminds me of one of those that i would have gotten at christmas we would have all gotten matching flannels like everybody would have had the green flannel right that kind of thing you guys done Matt is loving this. I mean, you you would be hard pressed to find someone more indifferent to and, and um, incompetent uh, in the area of fashion than, than myself. So actually, uh, uh, you haven't met my dad, who has literally left the house in my mom's coat. Um, he's also left the house, almost left the house in my mom's. Wait for it, skirt. Do you know what a skirt is? No, it's a skirt and something else. It's a skirt that has shorts under it so that, you know, you can like play tennis in it or, you know, bend over, pick something up without having to worry about it. Yeah, because if all he saw was like khaki, he wears khaki shorts during the summer. Right. He saw khaki, he could put them on his shorts. He didn't Uh, know that there was a skirt over it. Well, that's not illogical. No, I mean, I I I get it. I get it. I get it. All right. Well, um, let's move on to the news, which, which did happen this week. Yeah, there was there was some news. Yeah, there was some news. Um, And and we're going to talk about some of it with our guest, who is another repeat guest. And his name is none other than Aaron Mate. Mm -hmm. And I'm wearing a fur hat. It's not quite as good as this other red hat that I have that suggests Russia. But obviously, I'm wearing this because Aaron, like myself and like you, um, really gets called a Russian, a Putinist, a Putin agent. So, right, I'm appearing right. like this to announce him. That's right, right. Watching Kara show. What's it's that? Very good. It's just very good. All right, let's move on to four food groups. Uh, Democrats suck. Republicans suck. Uh, isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? Uh, for Democrats suck, uh, you actually chose this for me, and it's a good one. Dan, could we see the uh, the video? I can make recommendations. And for federal programs, I can do that as president of the United States. But I can't tell the state, you must move such and such a group of people up. But here's what I'd like to do. If you're willing, I'll stay around after this is over, and maybe we can talk a few minutes and see if I can get you some help. Let let me me just ask you, though. So that was Joe Biden at a town hall uh, Tuesday night. Right. So, uh, how sweet, right? He's gonna he's gonna see if he can help get this person healthcare. But, First kid with preconditions. And obviously, I think the point here is that it rings a little hollow because they they're not really interested in delivering healthcare for everybody or yeah. seriously fixing seriously fixing the system. You know, it's an empty gesture, but they're good at those. So yeah, I mean, uh, look, it has a very Hunger Games feel to it, right? Like very sweepstakes. Mm-hmm. Um, who will win a favor from the president who could, of course, actually make it so that, uh, you know, people had health care. Right. Uh, you know, f- from the man who 
uh, said he would veto Medicare for all comes a once in a chance, once in a lifetime chance to hang out after a town hall. Anyway, I would like that one. I would like to hear the follow up. I, I'm I'm curious if he will actually do that. And of course, if he does, it doesn't make it any better. Right. It's but it but look this this is the this is going to be the the pattern with uh, this administration. It's going to be kind of empty symbolic gestures. Which a lot of people are are, are are cool with, as long as, as long as it's not Donald Trump, um, they don't mind. You know, it, it, you don't want handouts. You want people right. to fight. You know, you want people to use that grit, grit right. and determination right. that people absolutely love. Yeah. They need bootstraps. Yeah. Bootstraps. Yeah. Bootstraps too. And what's really cool is when it's like a contagious, communicable disease. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't affect just that individual. So he really, it, what this is, is a challenge to America, Americans as a whole, to bootstrap. Right, right, yeah. What do we have for, Dem- for Republicans suck? Uh, for Republicans suck, we actually have, I want to give a shout out to the person who um, tweeted this out to, for me. Well, tweeted it to me from Amy Senese. Amy Senese. Thank you for that. What's her handle? It's just Amy S E N E S E. Because a lot of people, I'd seen this this uh, Governor Abbott, Greg Abbott, this terrible governor, blame the outages on like the Green New Deal, and it was like such like terrible propaganda. Um, but this one didn't get as much attention, so I thought it was really worthy of it uh, of a, a Republican suck. So the headline reading at Second Nexus is. Um, Texas mayor resigns after fallout from Facebook posts telling town to get off your ass during blackout. So I would just wanted to read his Facebook uh, post. Let me hurt some feelings while I have a minute. And it's always great when a mayor opens up, when any elected official opens up a social media post with that. And again, this is where there are like major, uh, there's a snowstorm, power outages. People have died from carbon monoxide poisoning because they've been in their cars to try to have heat. Um, Because Texas obviously is not really used to this. Let me hurt some feelings while I have a minute. No one owes you or your family anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim, it's your choice. The city and county, along with power providers or any other services, owes you nothing, all caps. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a damn handout. If you don't have electricity, you step up and come up with a game plan to keep your family warm and safe. If you have no water, you deal without and think outside of the box to survive and supply water to your family. Well, I like that this is a kind of a mixed message. I don't like this as being a mixed message. It's either, do you want us to, do, are human beings supposed to creatively deal without water or think outside the box to access said water? You know what I mean? I, I think he's saying think, with the, think outside the box to access water. Okay. But he does say if you have no water, you deal without. He, I think he's saying take a couple of days to think outside the box. And during those days when without that grit that I was referring to earlier and determination and that American, um, what would you call that? That, that American- Stick-to-itiveness. Stick-to-itiveness. Other, other people, and even Americans who don't have grit and determination, Americans who rely on handouts, they, they, they wouldn't be able to survive a certain mm. number of days without water. But if mind over matter, right? Um, right. If you are sitting at home in the cold because you have no power and are sitting there waiting for someone to come rescue you because you're lazy is direct result of your raising. Only the strong, and this has a real Nazi, I'm sorry, I don't like to overuse that, but it has a Nazi, shouldn't say quite about it. Just a, just a hint. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. 
Folks, God has given us the tools to support ourselves in times like this. This is sadly a product of a socialist government. And by the way, the, again, the governor of Texas is uh, Republican, where they feed people to believe that the few will work and others will become dependent for handouts. Am I sorry that and this is where he I, he really comes around here. Am I sorry that you've been dealing without electricity and water? Yes. Which is like, Matt, am I right that this is that's pretty impressive for him? Yeah, he's yeah, he's he's stepping outside his comfort zone. Yeah, exactly. He's thinking outside of the box and and accessing a charitable way of thinking. But I'll be damned. Okay, it was short but sweet. But I'll be damned if I'm going to provide for anyone that is capable of doing it themselves. We have lost sight of those in need and those that take advantage of the system and mesh them into one group. Bottom line, quit crying and looking for a handout. Get off your ass and take care of your own family. Bottom line, don't a part of problem be a part of the solution um which i think he's being a bottom line tease there i he is you know i was i was with him i trusted him i thought like i i we had an understanding but you lose me and you lose your credibility when you say bottom line twice you're only supposed to say bottom line once am i right that there's no hard and fast rule about this Oh, I think no, but the bottom literally think about what bottom line means. Well, well, yeah, there's, you, you can't have two bottom lines. Yeah, exactly. Okay, he this is his big apology. Ready? I was only making the statement that those folks that are too lazy to get up and fend for themselves but are capable should not be dealt a handout. I apologize for the wording and some of the phrases that were used. I had already turned in my resignation and had not signed up to run for mayor again on the deadline that was February 12th, exclamation point. So what do you think of that part of it? Look, if you're if you're not really going to apologize, just don't. Right. First of all. And uh, look, he, he he had a lot of great ideas. Look, if you if you got a family that's unproductive, you know, it's not giving everybody water can help prune the tree a little bit. Right. The weaker ones are going to die off. I, right? I kind of think so. Yeah. And the stronger ones are going to, you know, they're, they're going to get more of the share of whatever you do have. And so they're going to get they're going to get bigger. And it's like a boy named Sue, you know, you know, they, yes. right. You know, you're 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 training them. You're forging them in the fire of uh, of discomfort. And, yeah. um, you know, he, there's a lot of lot of really good life lessons there. Like you call it not, you know, not cystic. I call it, you know, realistic. Ooh, um, I like that. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, you know what, you know, what is this, uh, you know, a socialist summer camp? Exactly. You, know, you, yeah. you, you get you got to go out there in the world and you got to you got to kill your own food. Well, you, you know, also what this reminds me of. Um, remember when Rep. Elliot Engel, who's uh, was beat by uh, Jamal Bowman, when he was caught on a hot mic saying he wanted to speak at a, at a Black Lives Matter thing. And he said, if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. So Tim Boyd, um, the, this mayor of, uh, by the way, the town is West, the city or town is West Colorado, Texas. He he says, I wasn't running anyway. Mm. So it's, it's a similar thing, but he has the commitment, the grit and that American pride to not say it, to, to write it out, not as opposed to Elliot Engel, who thought he would not be heard. Yeah, I mean, uh, this guy didn't learn enough from Trump. Like, you know, when, when go big or go home, right? Yeah, exactly. When the flag starts, you know, coming your way, you don't, you don't, you know, take evasive action. You just you you dive bomb the yeah. fuckers, right? Yeah, you yeah. just go after him. So yeah, so his real the the real the real problem with this is that he started to apologize at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So down with him. 
for apologizing. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, all right, isn't that weird? Maybe this isn't weird. Maybe this is something that happens all the time. Dan, if we right. could look at the story from one of the great sources of weird news in the world, the uh, the mirror. Eerie baby, baby dolls nailed to trees next to Ouija board on old hospital grounds. Uh, the ragged dolls found, were found on the ground of the former Ministry Pensions Hospital in Canuck Chase, Hednesford, which closed down in the 1920s. And then there's a picture of a, kind of a creepy looking doll with looks like a camouflage dress on that's like nailed, nailed to a tree. Um, and then there's more of them. There's a, there's a picture and there's a whole like there's somebody went through a, a lot of effort to put a whole bunch of creepy looking dolls nailed to trees. I guess I should just read a little bit of this yeah. copy. Several yeah. eerie baby dolls, some with their eyes missing, you know, good, nice detail, yeah. uh, have been found nailed and tied to trees near an old wartime hospital. I just want to say, I just, just really quickly, I really respect the caution that nailed and tied. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that's thorough. Right. Yeah, because one of those methods could fail. Could give out. Exactly. Yeah. The spooky assortment hangs alongside an abandoned Ouija board on the on the grounds of the former Ministry Pensions Hospital in Canuck Chase, Hednesford. A walker who wished to inan- uh, remain anonymous. Why? Well, you'll see why. Keep reading. Uh, stumbled across the site after digging through the undergrowth last Thursday before returning later to perform a religious ritual. Now, now uh, it makes sense, right? Uh, okay, right. I, I guess I, okay, I forgot this. Uh, the toy's clothing had become raggedy and stained, although it's unclear how long they have been there, reports Black Country Live. Uh, all right, uh, let's scroll down now. The mom of two, 64, who, who herself is a theater practitioner at Walsall, uh, Walsall Manor Hospital said, I've had to shield uh, for all the lockdown, but when I was on my walks, I looked a bit further and as I dug through the undergrowth, I saw these dolls. They were in some sort of order. Their dresses were all raggedy and they were all tied and nailed to the trees. And as I came out of the woods, I saw a sign that this was the operating theater for the old pensions hospital. It was just a little weird considering what I do for my job. I've got a friend who's a spiritual medium and she wants to go and take a look up there to see if she can feel anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, She later went back to the site to check out the dolls again. She added, it wasn't that scary. And I stood in amongst the dolls. I was saying my prayers. I talked to the dolls and wished the children who used to live in the mining village eternal rest. Uh, History on the site shows an old war hospital was built on Brindley Heath where the dolls were discovered. So that people understand why she prayed for for mining kids. It was acquired by the colliery to house miners along with their families. The site was then known as Brindley Village and had a school and working men's club. But um, Matt, I, I mean, I have some ins- I have some thoughts about this, but I it's, this is your find. So tell me what you think first. I think it's appropriate that when you do find things nailed to trees that y- you contact a medium immediately and try to talk to them. That's yeah. the correct that's the correct social uh, response protocol, to this. Right, etiquette. Yeah. Etiquette, yeah. So she did the right thing. She did do the right thing. I would have asked them the weather and and maybe for some sports predictions too, you know? <laughs> I almost feel like the dolls nailed and and uh, tied to trees, it kind of loses its weirdness relative to the woman uh, going on a spiritual quest. You know, the thing is about think about this is though that that we have such a media saturated world now that um anyone with a little bit of imagination can can basically create uh their own interesting offbeat story just by doing weird unexplained things in a small town you know oh so you're almost like uh 
I feel like you may be uh, suggesting that she created this drama. No, no, no. I'm su yeah. I'm suggesting that somebody did, and and right, might see, might, yeah. might be reading the papers and 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 having a good laugh about it. You know, I, ha I had an idea like this when I was younger. Uh huh. To do what? So I, I tried to buy a really expensive Sasquatch suit. Like I called sort of like Hollywood uh, costume designers, and I wanted to get like a like a really realistic looking thing with an animatronic head and like speakers, you know, that would, that would. And my idea was that I would get a job in, as like a waiter in a small town, but like periodically go out at night and like just sort of be seen, you know? Yeah. You want to be seen. Uh, to be seen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like never close enough for anybody to actually shoot or catch me. But then, and then, you know, I would write a story about all the things that I overheard while I was serving people coffee, you know, right. like, right. <laughs> my life in the yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. You saw what, you know, like that right. would be a really, would be a really funny thing. Uh, but yeah. then. You know, I, I was plotting this with somebody and they were, they were like, there's no place in this country where you can do this where um, you can be sure that someone will, won't like make an effort to go shoot you. Right. Yeah. Because the stand your ground law is probably double applied to Sasquatch. Right. And then right? Imagine, imagine the disappointment when they when they come to, you know, they think that they finally discovered Sasquatch and they go to to get it and it's just a kid i know right, how you know? old were you i mean i was you know 20 maybe yeah 21, no, yeah right yeah so seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery join june parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s with new chapters added every week the excitement never ends Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. So for Isn't That Terrible, um, we're really elevating British news. So frail pensioner, which is, by the way, it's interesting. Both stories have pensioners. And that's a um, that's a retiree, right? That's what the Brits call mm -hmm. frail pensioner left lying in snow by postman still hasn't received an apology. The family of the bone disease suffering OAP, who was filmed lying helpless on the ground, has reportedly condemned the man for and has demanded that he get the sack. So a royal postman who sparked fury by failing to help a 72-year-old pensioner who had fallen in the snow still hasn't apologized for Nisa's claim. A family of the bone disease suffering OAP, who was filmed lying helpless on the ground, have condemned the man and has demanded that he get the sack. Shocking footage emerged recently showing a postman refusing to help a fallen pensioner who was lying on her doorstep because he was too knackered. Uh, Patricia Stewart, who suffers from bone disease, can be heard groaning in agony when she asked the postman to help her at her Fairfirk home. Falkirk. Oh, oh, Falkirk. No, uh, Falkirk home. But in the video, he tells her, I can't help, pal. <laughs> knackered, absolutely knackered. So if we could now uh, show, can we show the video? <laughs> oh. 
Actually, just an update. He's been suspended, but he still refuses to apologize. Now, there has been some good customer service because the manager showed up. The niece said, the man, a manager chapped my aunt's door and brought chocolates, but there has been no official response. Hmm. So that's a good, I like that manager. That manager is nice. And apparently um, uh, she was shouting help for 20 minutes and crying while laying in the snow after banging her head. He described the ordeal as very unpleasant. Even if he was knackered at the end of the day, that's his job. When I used to work and I was knackered, I still carried on, but you wouldn't leave somebody lying there in the snow. I had a head injury and he just left me and I couldn't believe it. Hmm. So maybe litigation was part of his thinking, right? We have to, you know, if I pick up this person and she slips, right? Oh, or yes, right. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty dick move. I think him saying he's too knackered is, is, is funny. That means tired in Britain. Well, I guess I'm just trying to justify leaving a suffering old person. Yeah. 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 So I anyway, we'll have to keep you guys posted on what. So for me, it isn't that terrible that a post, a postie, as they call it, left a woman um, crying in the snow because he was knackered. But I think for Matt, it's isn't that terrible that he's getting smeared. Right. When he's a funny guy. <laughs> and <laughs> when, he, when he's funny. And also when, I mean, I think, I think it's fair to indict. He's just doing his job. He's just doing his job. Nothing more, nothing left. Less, whoops. And um, I like the way he says, I can't help you, pal. Right. It's very chummy. I don't know. I, I, I'm reserving judgment on this one until I find out the whole story. Yeah, we're going to have to. In fact, if anyone knows, if anyone's working on this and any Brits are out there, who have access to we know it's it's pandemic and it's locked down but if you have if you live in their neighbor in that neighborhood we want maybe, to encourage you to do some for some investigating maybe that's a falkirk thing you know like s oh, sitting yeah. a, sit, sitting on your stoop and waiting for waiting for a postman to try to pick you up and so yeah. who knows, who knows? I, 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 I always yeah. suspect old people who are claiming to be in sick and in distress yeah i agree yeah. I never mean, take I that at face that's value that's what he was doing right uh all right so we have an excellent guest this week aaron mate of the gray zone project um, who is going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, the impeachment, media, the Russia story, and some other things. Uh, he's an FOS. Friend of show. He's yeah. a friend of show in more ways than one. And um, we're looking forward to picking his brain about some things. So let's talk to Aaron. Aaron Mate, welcome back to Useful Idiots. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Welcome back. Yeah. I don't even know enough Russian to say thank you. So I'll just <laughs> yeah. have to, I can't play along with the bit. So thank you. Spasibo Yeah. What's Dasvidanya? Dasvidanya is goodbye. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, all three of us, uh, covert Russian agents, but for the purposes of the show, we'll be overt yeah. a little bit. Um, we'll just let it out a little bit. Yeah. We're here to discuss our plan to uh, to cause the uh, the complete breakdown of American society through our various means. But uh, anyway, one masturbation Aaron, meme at a time. One masturbation <laughs> meme at a time. I guess you know, given that, we should start with the with the first thing, which is something I, uh, that you tweeted about, Aaron. And I, I think I thought we should show the clip because it's so funny. Was this they they couldn't get through the uh, impeachment case without 
having a little callback to Russiagate, and you pointed this out. Dan, can we see the, the, the clip? And at least one of the insurrectionists may have intended to steal information and give it to a foreign adversary. According to charging documents, Riley Williams allegedly helped steal a laptop from Speaker Pelosi's office to, quote, send the computer device to a friend in Russia who then planned to sell the device to SVR, Russia's foreign intelligence service. While we can't be certain if or how many foreign spies infiltrated the crowd, or at least coordinated with those who did, we can be sure that any enemy who wanted access to our secrets would have wanted to be part of that mob inside <laughs> these halls. <laughs> oh my God. Aaron, can you take that? What's your take on this, first of all? I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack here, but. While we can't be certain <laughs> if there were foreign spies or how many there were, we're still gonna use this platform to falsely suggest that the mob was overrun with foreign spies. Yeah, and that is what we're going to include in this very serious impeachment case we're making against the <laughs> former president. It's a it's, it's it's this mentality that Democrats have been afflicted with. You saw it too on Hillary Clinton's podcast where she had oh on gosh. Nancy Pelosi, and said they, she wish she had se- wish she had had the seen the phone logs right or uh, the phone calls on January sixth to see if he'd been on uh, Trump had been on the phone with Putin. Yes, Hillary Clinton is talking to Pelosi and she's saying, I wonder if you agree with me, whether you want to see if Trump spoke to Putin before the Capitol riot, implying obviously that Putin and Trump somehow orchestrated this mob. They cannot really say anything anymore without attributing it to Russia, which speaks to you know the political nightmare we've been living in for more than four years now, where basically uniquely American dysfunctions are blamed onto Russia, including a Trump-inspired mob. They can't even, like, leave Russia out of that. It's so disgusting. I mean, I can't. That's like saying, I don't know if this person I'm putting on trial was there, um, but they certainly would have liked to have been there. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, oh, the mo. I mean, it's so absurd. Also, I want to point out that Nancy Pelosi, her response to Hillary Clinton included saying, you remember when I was rude to Trump in that in my blue dress, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like saying this stuff out loud? Like, yeah, and she said, and she, and she said, and what I said to him was, and this is like yeah. the moment that's captured yes. in infamy in that photo with you, Mr. President. All roads lead right. to Putin. Yes, which is really it's an act, there, yeah. which is really it's an act of projection because with these people, for them, everything leads right. to Putin. They've spent four years blaming Putin, not just for electing Trump. But also for, you know, you can pick any topic like uh, Kamala Harris. There's a clip of her on The Breakfast Club where she says that the Russians, the whole Colin Kaepernick thing, the Russians started that. The Russian bot started that. And uh, (laughs) she heard that, that she heard that. Yeah. And Susan Rice went on CNN during the George Floyd protests and wondered whether Russia was fueling that, too. Uh, Right now, you know, millions of people are without power in Texas. And just remember, it was two years ago that Rachel Maddow went on t- went on her show and said the Russians could freeze millions of Americans to death by knocking out their power. So there's nothing under right. this democratic derangement syndrome uh, that Russia cannot do. And that's why I call it Blue Anon, because if you compare it to QAnon, I mean, QAnon, you could argue on the face of it is crazier. 
But really, there's a lot of parallels. Both of them see this like secret uh, authority manipulating things and, you know, manipulating the country in its own interests. In the case of uh, Blue Anon, it's this deep conspiracy involving pedophiles and the deep state. In the case of Democrats, it's Russian and QAnon, uh, Vladimir. You mean in the, in the case of QAnon, you said? Sorry, yes. In the, case, in the case of QAnon, yes. Yeah, sorry. In the case of QAnon, it's the latter. In the case of Blue Anon, it's like Vladimir Putin as the power with his like uh, with his sophisticated troll farms and uh, uh, email hackers has the power to like elect a president and sow chaos and brainwash millions of Americans into you know not voting for Hillary and protesting in the streets over whatever issues. So. There are a fair amount of parallels, and it's interesting to see that it just it never ends. It never ends. Even, even after Trump is gone, it never ends. I mean, it's funny because Q- QAnon in its specifics is about as crazy as a thing can possibly get. I mean, it's the, it, the explanation is so we, you, you, you would need like, you know, a chart this big just to be able to, to diagram uh, the, the ostensible plot to it. But the underlying thought is that it's you know, a, 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 a sort of a coalition of Trumpists who are taking on these elitists who, uh, you know, want want to take over the rest of society. So there's, there's a core of like emotional truth a- animating the, the, the QAnon theory, uh, which is as stupid as possibly as possible. But the, the, the Russia thing is amazing because it doesn't really have a correlation to anything that makes any sense anywhere. It, it feels like, I don't know. Or am I wrong? Well, that's no, I totally agree. That's the thing. Democrats, when Trump got elected, they were faced with a quandary because basically Trump got elected by portraying himself as an opponent and an answer to a dysfunctional neoliberal system. Problem for Democrats was they enjoy power and privilege in that system. So they couldn't respond with a genuine anti-establishment message to counter Trump's fraudulent anti-establishment message. So instead, you have to find a way of looking like you're fighting power while really still reinforcing power and especially your own power within that power system. So for them, the, the enemy was now Trump and his secret conspiracy with Vladimir Putin and Russian oligarchs. So we're not going to talk about American oligarchs. We're going to talk about Russian oligarchs. And that's why for four years, we heard so much more about Oleg Deripaska, this uh, Russian oligarch, than we did about people like Sheldon Adelson or Robert Mercer. R.I.P. Sheldon. R.I.P. King. Yeah. You know, who were instrumental in getting Trump elected and who are total foes even of liberal causes. But because that would require some minimal reflection on American dysfunctions and American power systems, although Adelson and Mercer got some attention, again, just look at the coverage. How often do we hear about Oleg Deripaska and secret conspiracies involving him and Paul Manafort and all this crazy stuff that was baseless? And that's why there is a strong parallel with QAnon. With Blue Anon, there was this belief that there was a secret conspiracy between Trump and Russians. And that was, and once we solved that, once we put our power in the hands of Robert Mueller, in the same way that who, QAnon sort says, of Q. Who, who, <laughs> Mueller was basically Q, right? I mean, well, that's know. the thing. That's the element of QAnon that has some, as you were saying, has some basis in reality where there is whatever you want to call, I don't use the term deep state, but there is a, an entrenched national security state establishment that has its own interests and that challenged Trump for its own reasons, not because they don't like the Trump is a misogynist or a racist, but because they don't see Trump as a suitable steward of the U.S. empire. He's too erratic. He's too cartoonish. So they had their own reasons to try to undermine him. And that all that converged 
into blue and on. And that's the conspiracy that we don't challenge. And that's why like Marjorie Taylor Greene, she got condemned for pushing all of her crazy conspiracy theories in like Facebook posts. But what about Adam Schiff? Like Adam Schiff read parts of the Steele dossier into the congressional record where he's saying things like Carter Page was offered a massive stake in the Russian oil company, uh, oil giant Rosneft, uh, Carter Page being a Trump campaign volunteer in exchange for helping out in exchange for Russian help to the Trump campaign and Michael Cohen being in Prague. Adam Schiff said this into the congressional record, which is crazy stuff. But where is the rebuke for him? It's nowhere. And no one can even look at it because it embarrasses too many people because it wasn't just Democrats. It was pretty much the entire media establishment that went along with it. I mean, I, I think that there is a parallel, but I also think there's obviously differences because, you know, with Green, like she posted a f- speech on Facebook uh, where she said that Pelosi was guilty of treason and that treason is a crime punishable by death. So there's certain differences, but point taken. Look, it's one thing for some kook to say something in a Facebook post, but the reality of Russiagate, what was it? In reality, Trump and the Hawks in his White House were radically escalating tensions with nuclear armed Russia. They pulled out of multiple arms control accords, the INF treaty, the Open Skies Treaty. They almost killed the New START Treaty, which was the last remaining treaty limiting the nuclear weapon stockpiles of the US and Russia. They were just days away from doing it when thankfully Joe Biden in his first act as president on the foreign policy front committed to renewing New START and launching a coup in Venezuela, which is Russia's key ally in Latin America, keeping troops in Syria, US troops in Syria to steal its oil, as Trump said, imposing devastating sanctions on Syria. Trump tried to stop the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, a vital pipeline between the US and between Russia and Germany. All these things that in reality were ramping up tensions between the US and Russia. What were Democrats doing? Ignoring all of this and then accusing Trump actually of being too soft on Russia of being Putin's puppet. So the one political force in the US that could have tried to restrain Trump and his far right administration from engaging in, you know, bellicose foreign policy decisions with an that escalate tensions with another nuclear power, the one force that could do that was instead encouraging him to be more confrontational. So I would actually argue QAnon might be nuttier on the surface, but Blue Anon was in reality far more dangerous. So where's the where's the new renewed investigation into all of this, right? I mean, they've now the Democrats are back in the White House. They're they're they don't have to be subject to the limitations of the special counsel. They they can use all the machinery of all the executive branch exec, investigative agencies. If they really thought this happened, shouldn't they be, you know, la- launching a massive multi agency task force to to root out the conspiracy? Well, Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton called for that. Um, I don't think they're going to actually do that because they know the answer that there is no conspiracy to find because, of course, we just had the Mueller investigation with sweeping powers more than two years looking at every possible every possible angle of collusion and then some, whether anyone like talked to a Russian or thought about a Russian who's anywhere remotely connected to the Trump camp and found nothing. So it, it was all for show. It was it was politics. And that's why even now there was this effort to find out like the, the Democrats under Trump were fighting for subpoenas. They wanted to get access to Don McGahn, Trump's White House counsel. 
I suspect they're going to drop all that now that it's no longer politically useful. All this claim about we need to get to the bottom of Trump and Russia and these contacts, it was for show as the multiple investigations, Mueller, uh, the House, the Senate, Horowitz, you know, all of them found nothing. And now the only investigation left is John Durham's investigation, which Barr appointed to look into the origins of the Trump-Russia investigation and to investigate whether there was any criminality on the part of the intelligence officials that carried it out. You'll be curious to see if that is allowed to proceed, if Biden tries to shut that down. I don't think he will. I do think Durham will probably limit his scope so that whatever he finds won't be particularly explosive. But I do think it's an important investigation to have because we know from the Horowitz investigation, which found the fraud and getting the FISA warrants on Carter Page, that there was malfeasance going on. And we deserve an explanation for it. I just don't think we're ever going to get the full story, or at least not for many decades until all of it is declassified. Because although the collusion aspect has pretty much been shown to be a scam, there's still the aspect to me of this, like all these allegations about sweeping Russian interference. And we've talked about it before on your show, so we don't have to go into the details. But every time evidence has come out, there's been evidence to undermine the narrative we got. So it took us almost three years for us to get the testimony of CrowdStrike CEO Sean Henry. CrowdStrike is the DNC contractor that generated the Russian hacking allegation. And in December 2017, he told Congress privately that actually they had no evidence that these alleged Russian hackers actually stole anything from the server, which then raises the question, if you don't have any evidence- They they inferred it, right? They inferred it. But if you don't have any actual evidence of it, how? why didn't you tell us that at the time when you came out publicly and said that Russia had stolen data and emails off the Democratic Party server. And we only got that admission nearly three years after it was made. We got it in May 2020 after Sean Henry said it in uh, December 2017. So that's one example of many where the evidence that comes out undermines the you know, widespread fear mongering that we got about Russian hacking. And I just think there's a lot of reasons to question everything we've been told so far when it comes to that whole Trump-Russia story. And hopefully, John Durham will provide some answers. I'm not so confident he will, but you know, it's, it's at least one more potential avenue where there might be some minimal accountability. What's your response, Aaron Maté, to the uh, conclusions of the Senate Intelligence Committee? Uh, you know, that this is sort of the go-to answer for people who, um, you know, who want to talk about Russiagate is not something that was completely fictional. Uh, a Senate committee did conclude that there was something there, right? So, so why, why are they wrong? So this was the Senate report that came out in August of 2020. And... Everyone took it to mean that it said something and found some explosive revelations, but it didn't. The only thing new in it was that it claimed, it claimed, that's the key word, it claimed, that this guy, Konstantin Kalimnik, who was a business associate of Paul Manafort, that he is a Russian intelligence officer. You actually read the report beyond the headlines you got in the media, and you'll find there's no evidence for that whatsoever. All they say is that that's their assessment. But all the evidence that they marshaled to support that conclusion is stuff we've gotten before in the Mueller report. And it's nothing. It's things like he traveled to the U.S. on a Russian diplomatic passport and he learned uh, he he studied in translation at a Soviet era, era military academy. We've heard that before. So basically, they're making an assessment based on nothing that all of a sudden this guy is a Russian intelligence officer. And meanwhile, they are omitting or downplaying 
so much countervailing evidence, which has been a theme of Russiagate from the start to the finish. So they downplay the fact that actually during the time when he was supposedly working as a Russian intelligence officer, he was a trusted source for the U.S. embassy in Ukraine. He was translating meetings between Ukrainians and U.S. officials like Victoria Nuland. He was meeting with top U.S. officials all the time and they were taking intelligence from him. And nowhere does the Senate say, God, this guy is a Russian intelligence officer. We need to do an assessment to see the damage that he did to our diplomacy in Ukraine because he was he was infiltrating us at the highest levels. They don't do that because they actually know, I think, that, they, that he's not actually a Russian intelligence officer. And so there's also a bunch of other evidence that is redacted, so we have no way to independently judge it. But just on the surface, the idea that the Senate, which has far less investigative powers than the Mueller team did, the fact that they could come up with something that the Mueller, that the Mueller team didn't, the Mueller team never called him a Russian spy or officer. All they said was that he has ties to Russian intelligence. And ties can mean anything. Like, if you speak to someone who's a Russian intelligence officer or if you know someone who knows a Russian intelligence officer, that could mean a tie. And when I did some reporting on this for Real Clear Investigations, I, I talked to the FBI and the Justice Department, and they told me that their assessment of Kalimnik has not changed, or at least they declined to say – they yes – they, 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 they did not say that their assessment of Klimnik has changed. So I see no reason to take the claim of the Senate Intelligence Committee over that of a team with far more investigative authority, especially since no evidence has been produced, and especially since they ignored all the evidence that undermines their assertion. Can you talk about um, the way that Biden, speaking of Russiagate, um, has deviated from Trump's foreign policy positions and the way that he has um, upheld them or in some cases exacerbated them? Yeah, overall, I'd say he's continuing them. There are a couple of positives or potential positives. So starting with the key issue of Iran, Obama's signature foreign policy achievement, the Iran nuclear deal, which Trump undid. Biden criticized Trump for pulling out of the Iran deal and he promised to come back to it. What has he done so far? He's stalled. And he's actually said that Iran needs to come into compliance first, which actually is itself based on a falsehood. Iran still is in compliance. They've reduced their commitments to the Iran deal. But that is in line with what the Iran deal says, which which stipulates that if another party uh, pulls out or breaks their commitments, then Iran is allowed to reduce its compliance, which is what Iran has, has done. Iran is still in compliance. It's the U.S. that has pulled out of the Iran deal and has reimposed so many of the sanctions that were lifted as part of the Iran deal. So Iran is basically saying, just return to the Iran deal. That's what they're saying to Biden. But Biden is refusing to go along with that. And it's worth thinking about why. Why would Biden go along with Trump undermining his own previous administration's signature achievement. I think it's because they're afflicted with this American exceptionalist attitude where they just don't want to legitimize this idea of acknowledging American uh, arrogance and American uh, bullying to the point where they're willing to continue Trump's policy. And they also want to use Trump's sanctions as leverage to get more uh, concessions out of Iran, which Iran has said is a, is a non-starter. They said we're willing to negotiate other issues, but not. Uh, but you can't use the Iran nuclear deal to try to achieve that because that's the deal that we made and that's the deal they expect the U.S. to right. keep its commitment to. 
Biden has, I think, on the positive side, appointed Rob Malley, who helped negotiate the Iran nuclear deal and who, in the spectrum of U.S. policymakers, I think is one of the better ones. So that's a positive goal. But then you have to wonder, does that mean Biden is siding with Malley's stances or is he just putting Malley there to give the appearance right, that he favors diplomacy? So you don't know. It's it's tough, but it's just it's crazy that Biden won't even re- return to his own administration's prior agreement and is stalling on it. I hope that they change course on that. Do you think it's an APAC thing? I mean, not to sound like a, a an anti-Semite or self-loathing against our people, Aaron, but do you think it is a question of like a certain, you know, lobby? It's more than APAC. I think, I mean, certainly what the Israeli government wants is a factor, but that's not the only factor. It's also, you know, you have Saudi Arabia, which is really opposed to the Iran nuclear deal, uh, the UAE, um, and there's also just an imperial thing where basically in the last four years since Biden left office, Iran has also resisted, uh, helped resist Saudi, uh, Saudi aggression in Yemen. Iran was also instrumental in defeating, helping to defeat the U.S.-backed dirty war on Syria. And so Iran has to be punished for that. Any state that is disobedient and stands up to U.S. aggression or U.S.-backed aggression has to be punished. And I think that's part of the factor here is that, and that's why there's all this talk about we have to punish Iran for its malign behavior. What that means in reality is that we have to punish Iran for standing up to us. Has nothing to do with human rights inside of Iran. U.S. policymakers don't care that Iran uh, oppresses its own people. It has to do with Iran standing up to U.S.-backed aggression, also in Iraq as well. Uh, So uh, that's the issue, I think, is that there's just this resistance doing anything that undermines the uh, imperial imperative. And the, there's just, you know, the U.S. is, look, in the case of the Iran deal, it's not as if like, you know, Obama came into office and decided that he wanted to make peace with Iran. Obama first tried to destroy Iran's economy. And the only reason that we even have an Iran deal, and you can read this. It's because Obama's book. a Muslim, so he felt concerned. <laughs> well, that too, that too, that too. But if you read uh, Trita Parsi's book, Losing an Enemy, which is like a thorough account based on interviews with all the players involved, the U.S., Europe, and Iran. It's very, he says that basically the Obama administration realized that Iran would develop nuclear capability faster than Obama's sanctions could destroy Iran's economy. That was it. Once Iran beat the clock, beat the nuclear clock, then Obama caved. And that's why they have a nuclear deal. So all this talk, even that like Obama's sanctions helped modify Iranian behavior, it's not even true. It was simply the calculation that we couldn't destroy their economy fast enough. So that's why we had to negotiate. And then Trump decided to reimpose that policy of trying to destroy Iran's economy, trying to deny its people food and medicine and make them people suffer enough to basically force their leaders into submission or even overthrow their leaders, which is the U.S. regime change playbook everywhere. But it's not going to work. And Biden, the Biden team must know that. But I think there's still this imperial hubris that allows them from coming to terms with that immediately. And hopefully that will change as we get further into Biden's administration. It's also, I, yeah, you're right. It's uh, if Israel is like the is the wife of the United States, because, you know, the U.S. government is always talking about their special relationship. Then Saudi Arabia is like the side piece. So, <laughs> yeah, special relationship but we, with both, but. we saw the heartwarming scene of John Brennan uh, congratulating the Biden administration for supposedly ending aid to 
Saudi Arabia's uh, hostilities in Yemen. Is that is that a thing to actually be applauded? Or I saw you tweeting about that as well. Yes. Well, it's certainly better than what Trump did. At the last minute, Pompeo designated uh, Ansar Allah, the Houthis, a terrorist organization, which was basically a death sentence for the vast majority of Yemenis because they live under territory controlled by the Houthis. And so designating them a terrorist organization would have basically cut off aid to all those areas on top of the fact that the country is already under a medieval siege imposed by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. So Biden immediately reversed that, which is good. And he uh, appointed an envoy and he said that we are going to end support for the Saudi war in Yemen. But you have to look at his words carefully because he said we're going to end support for offensive operations, <laughs> offensive Saudi operations in Yemen. And he also said we're going to he didn't say we're going to suspend arms sales. He said we're going to suspend relevant arms sales. Relevant so arm sales. Relevant arm sales. But so not these, irrelevant ones? Exactly. So these guys are slick. This is how the Obama-Biden camp does it. They're really good at pretending that they're doing something humane while adding these qualifiers that, if you look at the details, amount to basically continuing the same policy or modifying the same policy to make it slightly less murderous, but really still murderous. And that's the thing. Actually, if you look at Biden's language, it's very similar to the language that Obama used when he greenlit the Saudi invasion of Yemen back in 2015. Remember, it wasn't Trump that started the Yemen war. It was Obama. The Saudis came to the Obama White House. There was really no debate inside the White House. Everybody was on board. They authorized it. And Obama, when he announced his support, he talked about it being defensive for Saudi Arabia, that Saudi Arabia needed to defend its territorial integrity against Houthi attacks from Yemen. So really, Biden is now using the same language that Obama used when he authorized this mass murder campaign back in 2015. It's still better than Trump and Pompeo because they were they were just like unfettered support for the Saudi genocide. So it's a good thing. But there, if you look at the language, they've left it qualified enough that they could still continue to provide key support, but just call it defensive. And they could still sell Saudi Arabia arms but just call it relevant, you know, as opposed to irrelevant arms sales. The danger of it, of course, right, is that like, unlike the Trump stuff, people think it's now okay or now humane or now fixed and we don't have to worry about it. Um, so that's a different kind of danger. It is, but I'd still rather live under that danger than sure, live under yeah, the Trump danger where, yeah. see, under Trump, there's no, there was no chance that any kind of popular movement or congressional opposition would do anything. So right. when Congress, in a bipartisan fashion, passed the war, this war powers resolution calling on Trump to end U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen. He vetoed it because, of course, he did. Whereas if that happened under Biden, Biden, I think, is a bit more susceptible to public pressure. So it means that, yes, they're more they're more slick. They're more crafty in, in the sense that they can still promote the danger just in a benign uh, in a benign like uh with benign language, but right. they, they are still more vulnerable to popular pressure yeah. and to be held to their promise, which was to end the war. And this is where activism, sustained activism comes in and sustained media attention and sustained congressional pressure. Yeah, I'm not equating like the net effect or the net outcome or impact. I'm just saying that this is something that we didn't have to worry about with Trump. And you can go around the world. So, you know, right now in Haiti, there are massive protests going on against uh, Jovenel Moise, a U.S.-backed president who, again, he was a key ally of Trump. 
he even went to the White House and talked about how him and Trump were both entrepreneurs. They had this affinity. But really, he was put in power by the Obama White House and his predecessor, Martei, was put in power by uh, Clinton, by Hillary Clinton when she was secretary of state. And so now there are these massive protests going on against Jovenel Moise. His term was supposed to expire on February on February 7th. But he says that he really should be in office for another year. Uh, Haitian courts don't agree with him. The Haitian people certainly in massive numbers don't agree with him. And they're showing out to protest. The U.S. is once again standing on his side and saying that actually he should be in power for another year. And that's that's really what the U.S. says really matters in Haiti. If the U.S. were to turn on Moise and say, all right, it's time to go, he'd be gone in a second because he just can't exist without U.S. support. So that's a case where, again, Biden so far is continuing the Trump policy and really the longstanding U.S. policy of backing right wing autocrats in Haiti against, you know, popular movements. And that really goes back to like Haiti's founding in 1804 when Haiti became the first free country in the hemisphere. The U.S. feared the example that freed slaves would pose for the U.S. And so they helped back France in trying to put down the rebellion. They helped uh, France pillage Haiti even after Haiti became free. The U.S. occupied Haiti in the beginning of the 20th century, helped back uh, the Duvalier dictatorship up until Haiti's first free elections. And then Haiti's first free elections in 1991 elected the popular president, Aristide. He was immediately overthrown in a U.S.-backed coup and then overthrown again 13 years later in 2004 in another U.S.-backed coup. So this is just a long running thing. And Biden is a part of that establishment that has been pillaging Haiti forever. And it's just it's interesting to see him come into office and just immediately offer reflexive support to the right wing autocrat who, while, you know, tens of thousands are protesting in the streets. So uh, switching to another part of the world, uh, what happened recently with Gray Zone and, and Wikipedia? Oh, well, so that's a thing where so the Gray Zone, which I work for, founded by Max Blumenthal. And we do, you know, like I just think we do journalism, but we're because of like the because like the U.S. media space is so constrained and because I think we're one of the few sites that consistently pushes back on foreign policy, on prevailing foreign policy narratives, um, we've been labeled in the, into this box as being like anti-imperialist, which I mean, I am. I am anti-imperialist. Yeah. So I'm fine to be labeled that. But like it's almost like. Well, they use some a strange pe- word. Deprecated? Is that the word they, they used? Well, yeah. So ba- basically some regime change supporters in Venezuela Wait, uh, and elsewhere. Aaron, that sounds kind of uh, Russian-y, as, as Joanne Reed said about uh, Tulsi using that word. So just be careful. Oh, you can't use the word regime change? Okay. I mean, yeah, it's Russian-y. We All usually right, so, don't let that one slip, but yeah. Okay, so some some democracy promotion yeah. supporters. There we That's go. what we call overthrowing yeah. foreign governments, yeah, like course, starving yeah. their That's why we do it. starving their countries and overthrowing their governments. Uh, they banded together to get gray zone listed as a deprecated source, which means that self-deprecating. Means, you and Max are self-deprecating, but that's not that's not they weren't paying tribute to our right. self-deprecating humor, yeah. sense of humor. Yeah, no. They um, they banded together and they got the gray zone listed on Wikipedia as a deprecated source, which means that if someone wants to cite our reporting. So like if Max does an expose on how Sheldon Adelson, uh, his company, helped the CIA spy on Julian Assange, you can't cite that on Wikipedia because it's a, it's a deprecated source. Even me, if I write in the Nation magazine about the OPCW cover up scandal where 
the OPCW, the world's top chemical weapons watchdog, they investigated this alleged chemical attack in Syria in April 2018. Their own investigators found evidence that undermined the allegation that the Assad government was guilty, but they were censored, essentially, and sidelined, and there was a massive cover-up. So when I write an article about that in The Nation magazine, not even in The Gray Zone, you can't cite that on Wikipedia because I work for the gray zone. So, so by the transitive property of a sort of like oh, yeah. you, you guilt by association, you, you, you get, you get deprecated by extension. Yeah. Are we yes. deprecated now? You're not, but idiots, maybe, you know, the more you interview me or Max exactly, or yeah. other anti-imperialists, the more you risk that. And it's like, what's interesting so is there's this, there's a whole racket going on with Wikipedia. There's this one username named Philip Cross who if you look at like the hours he spends on Wikipedia, he spends like some ungodly amount of time each day, like, yeah, you know, more, 17 more than hours exists, right? Yeah. yeah, more, yeah. Just constantly editing people's profiles. So he's like the chief author on Max Blumenthal's Wikipedia page. And so when Max gets like a good review of one of his old books in the New York Times, they literally take that out and they instead add all these like shady sources that insult Max and they use that as the source. So there's people who are dedicated basically to smearing voices like Max Blumenthal and that's who operates inside the Wikipedia orbit. And people have, people who are have editing privileges there have tried to appeal, but they've gotten overruled. And there's, there's basically this like internal cabal cabal that exists to like denigrate anyone who's like remotely uh, anti-imperialist and remotely factual when it comes to exposing foreign policy narratives that uh, th that are in the service of U.S. hegemony. So it's just, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. And I recommend people go to the gray zone, read about how we were deprecated and also read about the network inside Wikipedia, who they are tied to. It's like, a, it's a regime change racket and that's who they serve to. So this notion that Wikipedia is this like free page for like free information, it's completely, it's, it's not true. There have been there have been issues with YouTube as well, haven't there? Well, with not with us, we haven't got. I, I don't oh, think we. Yeah, I mean, I suspect maybe we're not so high in the algorithm. Maybe maybe right. we're not promoted as much as I think as I would like us to be. But um, certainly, YouTube has removed other people's content recently, and I don't doubt there's that. There's like we, no transparency in it. Ever. Nothing. Yeah. So, no. Yeah, the, the reason I wanted to ask about the Wikipedia thing, though, is because I, I feel like the, the case of the gray zone is kind of um, is kind of like the poster child for why the whole content moderation mm -hmm. theory um, is eventually it can't work. Right. Because if even if it's it's done by some quantitative method that requires all the experts to agree uh, that somebody is wrong, what's going to end up happening is that the only deceptions that are going to be left are going to be the official ones, right? Absolutely. And, and so if you, have, if you have an outlet like yours, which I, I think, you know, I think it's probably accurate to say that the gray zone is, is very much concerned with looking at official deceptions of American uh, foreign policy, uh, almost automatically you're going to fall afoul of any kind of content moderation system, won't you? Uh, in my experience, yes. And, and the Wikipedia thing is a good example. And it just, it speaks to how it's like in the U.S., we're allowed to be progressive on domestic issues. So, you know, and Bernie helped put Medicare for all on the national stage. 
And, you know, we're talking about a $15 minimum wage and we talk about, you know, using resources to help people and for the common good. When you apply progressive principles to anywhere beyond U.S. borders, the space for discussion becomes a lot more limited. So even looking now at the squad, they're they don't talk that much about and that's like the farthest progressive, farthest left you can get in Congress. They don't talk that much about imperialism. And when they do, when they talk about places like what the U.S. does in Venezuela, the murderous sanctions that are denying kids food and medicine are literally killing people. There is some language now that is more principled. That is, you know, these are harmful and we shouldn't be doing it. But it's also everything is always couched in these sanctions are not having their intended effect, which presumes that we have the right to impose these sanctions and change people's governments in the first place. Like, do Venezuelans have the right to cut off food and medicine to the U.S. because they don't like our government? In fact, I would actually argue that they have far more grounds to do it, given that we've been terrorizing their country for so long. But no one accepts that principle when it comes to foreign countries doing it to us. So why do we accept it for them? And it's just in general, on foreign policy, there isn't the space for it. So when a website like the Gray Zone comes around, which is pretty much mostly concerned with foreign policy issues issues because there's such a huge void, I think, to fill inaccurate reporting, we get things like Wikipedia censorship and we get all kinds of smears against us. You know, Max got arrested on some bullshit charges. And notice how nobody challenged any facts that Max says. It's all just people are mad at the act of platforming and that's all they can do. You know, that's all they can do. Well, I mean, I was going to ask about your your experience with the OPCW story, because so, again, that's a story where, you you know, without even delving into uh, information that's deeply controversial. Right. You can look at you you can look at some some things that are just flat out uh, documented. They're they're true. There's multiple cross confirmation and reputable sources all over the place. But it's still very, very difficult to get certain even the the baseline information of that story out, you know, what kind of pushback did you get? First of all, tell us a little bit about that yeah. story. And then, and then second talk, if you could talk a little bit about the pushback that you got when you did do that story. So this OPCW story is to me, one of the biggest global scandals since the Iraq war. And there's a corollary scandal, which is the media scandal, which is basically, it's been impossible to cover it. And very few outlets have. There are some exceptions, which I'll talk about. But basically, the story is, in April 2018, the Syrian government is accused of committing a chemical attack in a town called Duma, which is outside of Damascus. And there are videos that are broadcast of people, of dead people inside of a building suffering uh, the impact of uh, what looks like toxic gas exposure. And there's also uh, footage inside a hospital where people are being hosed down, uh, supposedly being treated for exposure to a toxic weapon. So a week later, the US, Britain and France bombed Syria based on this allegation. Shortly after the OPCW, the world's top chemical weapons watchdog gets in to investigate. And a year later, they put out their final report. And the final report basically lends strong credence to the US government claims that the Syrian government was guilty. They don't explicitly say it, but if you read the report, you can infer from it that they're saying the Syrian government was guilty. Then, though, we get a series of extraordinary leaks, which show that the actual investigators who deployed to Duma and wrote the team's original report reached a far different conclusion than what was put out publicly. So, And it also shows that when they submitted their initial report, 
which found no evidence of Syrian government guilt, that somebody above them took the report and doctored it and, and tried to insert a whole bunch of unsupported claims insinuating that the Syrian government was guilty. And there was a standoff internally. And to make a long story short, the result was that all the inspectors who deployed to Duma, and especially the chief inspector, a guy named Brendan Whelan, who was the OPCW's top chemical weapons expert at the time, all of them were sidelined. And they were replaced by a team that basically went along with the official narrative. And that's who produced the final report. And there's this is like there's a whole archive of leaks up at WikiLeaks. And there's another series of leaks that I reported on at the Gray Zone. And they all show this consistent pattern of the actual inspectors who went to Duma, who conducted the investigation, who wrote the report, the first report, protesting the censorship, the censorship of their findings. And so since all this has gone public, um, the inspectors, there's two of them that we know about, have asked the OPCW for the chance to meet with the director general and present the findings that were censored and just weigh the evidence in a transparent manner. But that request has been ignored. And instead, they've been attacked uh, by the US, Britain and France as being, you know, lackeys of Russia. And the media has just completely ignored the story. So try to find a reference to it anywhere. It's at the gray zone. It's at the Nation magazine where I wrote an article summarizing the scandal. There's Robert a couple of Fisk, British, yeah, Robert Fisk. Yeah, yeah. Robert Fisk, the R. late R. great Robert Fisk, RIP. He went to Duma originally, actually, before, before the OPCW um, wrote their report. And he interviewed a doctor who treated people inside the hospital. And the doctor told him that actually this was not a chemical weapon. This was smoke inhalation. And he also said, in fact, that there was people from this group, the White Helmets, which is heavily funded by the US and Britain that actually came in with video cameras and basically tried to portray the scene that there was chemical exposure because they were screaming gas and gas and they were trying to this freak is people out. According to Fisk reporting. According to Fisk reporting, yeah. And so, uh, so Fisk wrote about this and then Fisk then wrote about the OPCW leaks when they came out. And so did Peter Hitchens of the Daily Mail. But aside from that, it's impossible to find a reference to it. And in the US media, the only reference that I can find was in this New York Times article. It wasn't even about Syria. It was about this another shady organization called Bellingcat, which is this like um, they build themselves as, as this open source uh, investigative like WikiLeaks. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just like it's just I think it's like, a, yeah, it, I'm not going to get into my speculation. Like official, but it's official leaks. Yeah, it's official leaks. Basically, it's like it, it's 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 like it's like my how I see them as is like U.S. governments needed something to like pre- pretend that they're WikiLeaks, but really act in the service of U.S. governments. And that's what Bellingcat is. And that's why I think they received funding from governments like the U.S. and other NATO allies. So Bell- so this article in the, in the New York Times about Bellingcat and talking about how great they are and how we can trust their methods. And Bellingcat has been used to whitewash the OPCW cover-up. They put out all these articles with debunked, with with junk science and even false claims that I've exposed, trying to denigrate the OPCW inspectors, the ones who conducted the, the investigation. And so this article is about how great Bellingcat is. And at the bottom of the article, they mentioned that there was this one email from an investigator in the, in, in the OPCW. And that's how they portray what in reality is like a trove of leaks, not just an email, but like, you know, other documents, including the original report from the team that was censored. So that's how the New York Times portrays this story. And that's the only mention that I can find 
in the U.S. media. And the saddest part is, is that even on the adversarial side, so you take the Nation magazine, so they printed my article and they got a bunch of, you know, angry letters for it from apologists for Syria regime change. But, you know, no one could refute a single fact. But aside from the Nation, they're really the only one, even on the progressive media side, aside from the gray zone too, that have tackled this. You look at Democracy Now! and The Intercept, and they've either ignored the story or they've whitewashed it. And to me, it's like you're talking about a scandal that is yeah. on par with Iraq WMDs. You have fake intelligence being concocted to justify U.S.-led airstrikes and justify well, allegations that at, like- At least possibly, right? In the case, it's true that, you know, I don't have a smoking gun saying that the U.S. told the OPCW to do to to concoct this evidence. But it is actually a fact that these investigators, as they were writing up their report, a U.S. delegation came to the OPCW and and met with them and tried to convince them to say that it was a chlorine chemical attack. So there was an attempted effort by the U.S. to influence the outcome of, of the investigation. And I can't help but conclude that this was done to grant post facto legitimacy to the US bombing of Syria, and also just to justify the ongoing economic warfare against Syria. Because now, when the US tries to justify you know, imposing the Caesar sanctions on Syria, these sanctions that basically cut off Syria from the entire world, to the point where doctors have to smuggle in medical equipment, and people can't even import toothpaste. The US cites things like these chemical weapons attack allegations. So they're in the service of a narrative to justify uh, a really cynical political goal. And it's just, it's crazy to me that there's such a refusal on the part of even adversarial progressive media to look at it because it's not as if that you don't even have to speculate that there was censorship. It's all documented in right. these reports. They're all up there in my articles and up at WikiLeaks. But I mean, I, just for like the use, uh, for the uses of uh, like rhetorical value, like to be as conservative as 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 possible, right? Like, here's what we know, even if we don't know the ulterior motives, right? There was a there was intervention. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so, like, can you just make the case for the, the most skeptical case of what is like definitely known without which which, which doesn't require any um, extrapolating of motives? Yeah. OK, so. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. bombed Syria based on these allegations of a chlorine attack. Shortly afterwards, the actual OPCW investigators who went in to investigate this found no evidence of that and actually found evidence to undermine the allegation. That evidence was suppressed. The uh, findings that they found that undermined the narrative of a chemical attack were omitted from the OPCW's reports. Fraudulent science was added. And this coincided with a U.S. delegation visiting the OPCW and saying, we think that this is what happened. So the censorship coincided with the U.S. effort to influence the investigation. And since all this has come out, the U.S. media has refused to report on the story. And I just think that's a case in the case of the U.S. media. That's just a classic case of manufacturing consent to report on this story where these allegations of this like fanatical Assad government that chemical that uses chemical weapons against its own people. These are paramount to the narrative that is used to sustain that was, you know, a 10 year dirty war in Syria in which the U.S. poured billions of dollars into the country, into militias that helped destroy the country and then now imposes sanctions. So 
now I'm getting into my speculation again. Yeah. But the point but is, but if we just stop it at, at even yeah. just stopping it at uh, where was it that you stopped it? The, the censorship and the, the censorship, intervention yes. of the yes. like just to make the argument, like yeah. at the very least, that's a story in itself, right? At the very, like, at the very least, those parts of it. Yes, yeah, I'm sorry that I, I went back into. No, no, my no, it's fine. Political. I understand, but the, yeah, the at, at the very least, the fact that an organization by the world's top chemical weapons watchdog that the actual investigators who conducted the actual investigation and people with actual scientific credentials, unlike Bellingcat, that they say that their investigation was compromised and that there is a trove of documents to back them up. That is worthy of, of attention yes. and investigation. Right. And the media silence is a scandal on its own. With regard to that media silence, I want to ask you a little bit about your personal experience, because I'm guessing that th there are two factors involved. Uh, some of these institutions like the interceptor or, or the nation or well actually the nation did do it but um probably some of them just don't know a whole lot about the issue but there's probably some people who just don't want to deal with the, what comes with reporting on this story right and so you do this story uh you basically become a guy who, who writes about syria um has that <laughs> affected your uh you know your relationships in the business do you get fewer calls from certain people are, are there fewer appearances i mean is is that something that's tangible in any way uh, because i'm because I, I i'm pretty sure that that a lot of people just don't want to deal with the with the headache of what comes from with reporting on this story i think that's true but it's not just that and in my own personal case once i decided to come out against Russiagate and call it out as bullshit, which I knew it was. I knew that I was crossing the line. Like before that, I had applied for producer jobs at MSNBC. You know, that was actually stuff. <laughs> if I, only like, they had hired you. <laughs> honestly, you know, who knows how things could have turned. I mean, that would have yeah. been impossible to stay. But, you know, it would have been it would have been a very funny resignation had I ever gotten that job. But once I crossed like like once I crossed that line, I knew there was no going back. And that's fine. I mean, that's where I exist anyway. That's where my political com commitments are. So. I, it was a gamble I was willing to take. And I knew that it was funny is like even that act of questioning a ridiculous conspiracy theory, even that I knew would get me barred in some places. But that just speaks to how constrained the media system is. And I'm grateful that I have a chance to not have to worry about that anymore and worry about operating inside that space. And so I've already crossed that line. And certainly with Syria, in this case, look, I'm not even saying the most controversial stuff. Uh, it's people like my colleagues, like Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton and Rania Kalik. Back when everybody on, you know, in media spaces and even in leftist media spaces were supporting the dirty war in Syria, where it's in reality, again, was like the, the U.S. was funneling billions of dollars into the country on weapons and, and helping to support jihadists who were destroying the country. In the words of Robert F. Worth, who was a reporter for, a reporter for The New York Times, he wrote a great piece. Called get through? Call, well, because he's a great reporter and he went to Syria. It's called Aleppo After the Fall. And it was published in April 2017. I, I really recommend it because it actually changed my view a lot on the Syria dirty war. He's talking about a place called Latakia, where, which is you know uh, comprised mostly of Alawites, a, a sect inside Syria. And he says that if the U.S.-backed uh, rebels in Latakia had been successful that they would have committed, quote, sectarian mass murder. So that's what we were supporting. And that was the reality of Syria. And when people like Max and Ben and Rania push back and all that, and so we don't 
accept our right to destroy a country through a dirty war. They got vilified and they got kicked out of a bunch of media spaces. So they really, people like them set the trail that I was already following. And in this case of the OPCW, it's just so uncontroversial. This is the OPCW's own inspectors. We're all supposed to champion whistleblowers. So then this takes me to the intercept and democracy now. You know, I come from democracy now. And we've always championed whistleblowers there. And we've always challenged narratives that are used to justify wars. So, yeah, there might be people who don't want the headache. But, you know, I single out those places particularly because they have the resources yeah. to be able to withstand, you know, name calling and, 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 and smears. Like someone who's like a freelancer, I get it. Sure. I get why they don't touch it. But an institution that is protected has big financial support, doesn't have to worry about that, which makes it not just cowardly, but also, look, in their case, they have, an, they have a special responsibility because it's not as if they've ignored Syria. In both the case of DN and The Intercept, you can look at their coverage, and there's so many instances of them actually whitewashing the, the, the dirty war in Syria, including in the case of this OPCW cover-up. So I think they have a special responsibility. So while some people, I think, can get a pass in not taking on issues that would seriously threaten their career and their job prospects. I get that. You can't make that case when it comes to like major, well, well-funded and nominally adversarial outlets like The Intercept and DN. Also, when I think that another really dangerous part of this is that when places like that don't talk about these stories, it makes the people like you or the work that you're doing look fringe, right? Because certainly if this were valid or this were credible, we'd be hearing about it from places like Democracy Now! and The Intercept. So it just yeah. reinforces the idea that this isn't trustworthy and it's like pretty infuriating. And that's why people freaked out when I got published on this in The Nation magazine. Not because again, they can challenge anything I say, but they don't like to see a mainstream adjacent stamp of approval on something, or at least not even approval. It's not as if the editor's like, necessarily agree with me, but they're just allowing it to be discussed. And, you know, McCarthyites and totalitarians don't want to allow a free, dis a free discussion of the facts on core narratives that challenge their, um, their causes and what they support. And in the case of Syria, it's so, it's such a big scandal to the point, you know, look, a court in DC just ruled against Jason Leopold of BuzzFeed News. He was trying to sue to get records of the CIA's support for the rebels, the ones that were, as I said before, were bent on committing sectarian mass murder in Syria. And that got denied. He won the first round, but he just recently lost the second round where a circuit court overruled him. And so now we'll never, we might never know that, or at least we, we might not know that until after we're all gone, the extent of US support and direct payments to these sectarian mass murders. And that's the only way these foreign policy scandals can survive is by keeping the public in the dark. And that's why it's such a shame that even those outlets that are supposed to do their job in being the exception to the rulers and breaking the sound barrier and challenging all this stuff when they go along with the mainstream narrative. It's like, it's, it's, it's really upsetting. The last thing I, uh, I wanted to ask is, I mean, do, do you think that ultimately the legacy of, of Russiagate is is going to be that sort of consolidation or the absorption of alternative media into kind of the more corporate media. Cause it feels like that was a major, a major uh, result of the last four years is they took a lot of places where there was some, a little bit of intramural disagreement 
between various factions of people who considered themselves left-leaning. And suddenly a lot of those those distinctions kind of evaporated uh, as, as that story was reported. Or, or what happened there? I mean, no, I just, I'm, I'm, you know, Russia gets mainly over now. So yeah. like what, what was the main impact of it? Well, the fact that Trump was there was such a good tool to frame the narrative around what the leading Democrats wanted. So everybody hated Trump. He was such a nightmare. And so anything that could be presented as the answer to Trump was just accepted without skepticism. So Russiagate, all of a sudden, because this investigation we were told was going to imperil Trump and even end the Trump nightmare, Mueller was going to invite him. Mueller was going to bring him out of the White House in handcuffs. It just became very difficult for some people to challenge that. And it incentivized all the more uh, people to go along with it. And those of us who didn't challenge it, A, because we try to do our jobs and just look at the actual facts. And B, in my case, I, I don't know about you, Matt, but like I thought it was a massive gift to Trump. So like instead of focusing on his actual policies, like the tax heist, uh, trying to destroy Obamacare, you, can, you know, uh, immigration uh, cruelty, everything. We were talking about this dumb Russia collusion theory. So I thought all that was a gift to Trump. It just became impossible. And so that helped shift everything to the right. So where if you challenge that, you became smeared as a Trump apologist when he was being impeached over this Biden thing, which nobody even can remember now, like Adam Schiff was getting up every day during the impeachment and saying things like, you know, we're the shining city on the hill. We have to fight the Russians over there so we don't fight them over here. Nobody really challenged that, even though it was like in, he was like spewing deranged Cold War mania every day. He was sounding like Mitt Romney was back when the, back when the Democrats were mocking him when he ran against Obama back in 2012. Or John, so, John McCain. That was that was one of his lines about going yeah. into Iraq. Yeah. So basically the Russiagate shifted Democrats over to like the McCain Romney line. And everyone went along with it because on the surface, it looked like you were challenging Trump. And really, as we see again, again and again with Mueller, with the first impeachment, with the second impeachment, it's just performative theater to make it look like we're doing something while really still doing nothing and actually helping Trump, you could argue, and only helping neoliberal Democrats avoid scrutiny for their own failures, especially the ones that gave rise to Trump in the first place. So I uh, I do still see the spillover of that in lefty media where the like prevailing neoliberal narrative about Trump really has won out. And if you challenge it, you can easily be portrayed as somehow being a Trump apologist. So yeah, I do think the spillover effect is strong and it's up to us. It's up to us to stop it. <laughs> and you coined this term, Aaron, that Russiagate is a privilege protection racket, right? Because, of course, famously, the Clinton campaign, as we know from the book Shattered, the Clinton campaign sat down over pizza the night she lost and said that they were going to blame the Russians. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that so that's still a useful tool for them. Um, and I want to know, you know, you're talking about the squad and the problematic framing of sanctions as as something that who's a, like as something that we have to look through in a pragmatic lens, like whether or not they're effective and how they're, you know, the, the, the actual premise should be that we shouldn't be doing that anyway and intervening. And of course, that's true. But what possibilities are there for the squad or progressives to actually affect policy? Like, are there things that are going to come up that they can vote in a certain way on that has a concrete difference um, in the lives of people in these other countries, sanctions, votes? Well, to give them credit, uh, Ilhan Omar recently yeah. spearheaded a letter to Biden calling on him to review sanctions 
to suspend them in certain areas. And I think that's great. I, th- I mean, if I had written the letter, I wish it were stronger. Yeah. I, w- I wish it had said we have no right to impose these sanctions to begin with. But, you know, so that's so they are. I, but to give them credit, they are doing something. And there was a proposal by Tulsi Gabbard in the last congressional session this past summer, I believe, where she wanted a report. She wanted it mandated that the U.S. government produce a report every year on the impact of its sanctions, which I think would be a wonderful thing. Actually, the uh, Congress actually recently produced a report about Venezuela, about the impact of U.S. sanctions there. And they basically concluded, uh, just as the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Sanctions just did, Elena Dohan, uh, that U.S. sanctions helped destroy Venezuela's economy. Because, of course, they did. That's what their intent is. Their intent is not to... um, punish right. individuals who powerful yeah, yeah it, it's you know and and you know it, it, it's to strangle the population into submission so that they suffer enough that they so that they turn on their government or and even overthrow it that's what the u.s does everywhere did it in iraq in the 90s that's why two u.n coordinators resigned there because they felt as if those sanctions were genocidal it's what the u.s tried to do to nicaragua going back many years everywhere everywhere there's a disobedient government so um that's a concrete proposal that I think should be revived, that it's mandated that any country that is being targeted with U.S. sanctions, there should be a report, a nonpartisan report that looks at the facts of what that is doing to that country. And that was voted down by Republicans in the last Congress after Tulsi Gabbard managed to get it inserted into a bill. But that should be revived. And just the, I, I would hope that progressives in Congress use their platform to say, to say, you know, to Biden, like, why are we continuing Trump's coup in Venezuela? Why did you invite Juan Guaido's fake ambassador to your inauguration? It's a good opportunity. We all hate Trump, right? We're all supposed yeah. to hate Trump. Trump's the bad guy. So even for the squad, there's a good rhetorical opportunity to just like, even though I think Trump is really continuing a, a bipartisan U.S. regime change policy. But like in the case of Trump, in the case of Venezuela, he did try to launch a coup there. That was his coup. So make him own that coup. Stigmatize the coup as being Trump's because it is Trump's coup. Why are we trying to overthrow a government? Why are we trying to uh, prevent Venezuelan kids from having medicine because their government is uh, counter hegemonic and tries to use its own resources for its own people? That's the real reason why we're targeting Venezuela. Why are we continuing to support this right wing autocrat in Haiti? Why are we now interfering in Ecuador, which is just had a new election and the leftist candidate, the, the real leftist candidate won the first round. But now the OAS, the Organization for American States, um, the, the Organization of American States is getting involved again, just like it did in Bolivia to claim that there was potential fraud. And they might be trying to negate that first round of voting. So make this about Trump. Like, why is Biden continuing all these Trump foreign policies. Why are you continuing Trump's foreign policy even in Iran? Why are you undermining your own nuclear deal? So there's just a public opportunity for progressives to use their platform to undo destructive foreign policies. And the fact that Trump did them provides a yeah. very easy way to distinguish you know, us from what Trump did. Yeah, and the same thing with Assange. It's like, if you like yeah. Obama and you don't like Trump, yeah. go with the Obama thing, which was not to extradite him instead of the Trump thing, which is to extradite him. Um, Last, really last thing, any comment on the impeachment and Navalny? Did I say his name right? Is it Navalny? Navalny. 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 I first knew how to say it. Navalny, yeah. Impeachment, I I was on board with it first because I do think Trump was seditious. 
He refused to accept the results of the election and he tried to overturn them, the phone call to Georgia. I think they brought the wrong case, though. They're trying to hold them responsible directly for the mob. But the problem is, if there had been adequate security that day, the mob wouldn't have happened. And the security failures so far, I don't think you can just pin on Trump. If they could find evidence that Trump somehow prevented you know, proper security around the Capitol, I think they would have found it by now. There are some hints that maybe there was something going on, but nothing concrete. And I think the failure there goes beyond Trump, but also to the D.C. mayor, to the National Guard, and even to maybe Congress itself. Like Nancy Pelosi had a role there. She could have tried to step up security. She didn't. So I think that trying to accuse them of inciting the mob when, you know, you can, I just don't think that, I don't think that was the right case to, to pursue. And then, you know, you look into what it devolved into. You played the clip before of Joaquin Castro. It became again, this display of like chauvinism and patriotism. And one of the things Joaquin Castro said, it was like, he was denouncing the fact that it undermined our ability to carry out our objectives abroad. Yeah. So basically, he was mad that it carried out. He was mad that the mob on Capitol Hill undermined our ability to mob other capitals. Much more successfully. Much more successfully. So I think uh, but really, you know, it's part of the partly it's this Trump addiction where both Democrats and major media outlets, they thrive off of Trump. And so this was like this was like bonus content for them to keep this going even after he's gone. And Navalny, I mean, I. I'd be curious to hear what Matt thinks of all that. I think uh, I don't follow internal Russian politics too closely. What right. I find what I find funny about the Navalny thing is like he's now portrayed in the West as this like liberal hero when the reality, I think, is a lot more nuanced. He doesn't have that much popular support. He's known less as a political leader than as an anti-corruption activist. And, journalist, also, yeah. and a journalist. There's also the inconvenient fact that he's like an open xenophobe. And now I read these like profiles, these fawning profiles in the New Yorker or the Times, and they address that and they they to but and they make the argument that he he probably regrets those views. And they even cite some associates of his who says, yeah, he does. He doesn't believe that anymore. But they ignore the fact that Navalny himself has never renounced them. And when he was given the opportunity by The Guardian in 2017, I believe he said, no, yeah, like I, I stand by everything I said when he compared immigrants to cockroaches and all that. So yeah, he did a, he did a commercial. That's pretty amusing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which we should, score. by the way, we should cut that in because it's, he's saying that, you know, he, he's like, okay, we're going to talk about cockroach infestation today. And um, usually you can use a shoe or a swatter, but what if it's too big? In that case, I recommend a gun. Mm-hmm. And it, he, he shoots at someone who's like, I think clear to everyone in that area represents Muslim migrants the whole thing about you know well, well what do you what do you you know if you if you have these vermin you're usually like a fly swatter or or a, a, a slipper is great uh but uh, what happens if the the fly if the fly is uh if, if the terror if the the cockroach is too great and the and the fly is unusually strong uh in that case you know i recommend a pistol i mean it, it, it the, the humor like it's very russian like you'll hear that in the provinces everywhere but um so just briefly on navalny which i i have never said anything about it publicly mainly because uh i'm not there anymore and it's um it, it's hard to know exactly all the different nuances unless you're following it really really closely but it it reminds me a little bit of so when I was there, periodically the Western reporters would fall in love with this or that Western-oriented politician 
typically one who spoke English um, and, you know, uh, sort of expressed sympathy with kind of the generally Western outlook. Russians have had this long historical divide between what they call the Westerners and the Slavophiles, the people who are oriented toward Europe versus those who are oriented toward Asia. So, like, you know, politicians like uh, Grigory Yavlinsky, right, from Yablika, which was a group that they had over there, or uh, Sergei Kiryenko, who was the prime minister, uh, who Americans loved, but, like, basically no one in Russia even knew. It was, you know, there's almost always a huge discrepancy between uh, how popular uh, the figure is in Russia versus what the American propaganda is. And with, with Navalny, clearly it's a little bit of that same situation where, um, you know, his levels of support are below. It looks like even Vladimir Shironovsky, who's kind of a, like a carnival sideshow, uh, Trump type character in Russia. Uh, he's, he's pretty well known as, as a reporter. Uh, and you know, he was a, he was a Sanders supporter. So he has a lot of views that sound great to, to American liberals. Um, but he's got some pretty weird views too, that uh, that that probably sound less strange to Russians uh, than they do to us. Um, but I think there's a huge uh, discrepancy between what what Americans imagine his importance to be versus what Russians uh, think. And even though those protests those protests were really impressive, but how much of that was Navalny and how much of that was something else, I don't know. I recently interviewed two yeah. Russian leftists about this, and they said that people did come out for Navalny, but also some people also came out for other issues like declining wages and right the pension the, thing, the, the pension thing, like they they've raised the pension, uh, the age for pensioners. So there are a whole, a whole bunch of grievances that were captured for briefly. We don't know if it will sustain itself in the Navalny protest. But these people I spoke to, you know, who are, you know, dedicated Russian leftists, they are not fans of Vladimir Putin by any means. One of the guys I interviewed actually went into exile uh, after uh, being a protester against Vladimir Putin back in the, in, in the 2011 to 2013 period. He says that basically Navalny represents just a different faction of the same corrupt elite. And policy-wise, although Navalny has helped expose corruption, he was saying that Navalny represents the same neoliberal policies as Putin. And so didn't see much of an alternative, except for the fact that Navalny is more receptive to obeying Western dictates. And on that front, you know, RT recently put out this video that came from Russia's FSB, its internal security service, that was like a covert video. And they obviously put this out in response to the global outcry over Navalny sentencing. But it's a video of Navalny meeting in Moscow with a official from the uh, from London from the British embassy, who Russia alleges, I have no idea if this is true or not, but they allege that he's actually an intelligence officer. But anyway, no matter who he is, they're talking about this ally of Navalny, asked the Russian, uh, asked the British representative for money and help in getting protests going and help in launching propaganda campaigns and says even that we're going to try to reach out to the Russian elite and tell them that we're not a threat to them, that really our concern here is Putin. So you know, I um, his treatment, certainly you can criticize, but also it's funny that this is happening just at the time as the U.S. is trying to extradite Julian Assange and keeping him locked up freezing in a British prison in much worse conditions than Navalny is being held in. 
And so that's why the outrage over Navalny, it's hard to take seriously. Yeah, it's interesting because usually the person like the Navalny is good, is like a neoliberal and maybe an austerity guy um, and would be terrible for most people, but is like woke. It's interesting that in this case, it happens to be someone who's like Islam, a, a nationalist Islamophobe. Yeah, yeah but just, just just to one last point about that is that, yeah, like the, there's there have been over the years opposition figures in Russia who are who are legitimate and plausible opponents to Putin, but don't get the Western support because they have the wrong configuration. Right. So, you know, a, a, an example of that would have been Alexander Lebed, who was um a general uh, and he was the second he was uh, on the security council under under yeltsin uh, but he was kind of a nationalist he was like very much not into allowing americans to come in and have free reign over markets he he was he was a democrat uh and he was very, he was against all the corruption in the yeltsin regime and then later in the putin regime but like he wasn't one of ours so he didn't get the the press and so that yeah that's just that's just a factor that you have to think about when you see american coverage of russian politics always uh aaron thanks so much for for coming on and talking about especially the opcw stuff uh always happy to have you all right and uh and we'll see we'll see you next time thank you guys i really appreciate the chance so that was great he's great i mean the, the thing that kills me about the aaron story is like don't even buy into the reject whatever his interpretation is like it's a story that's newsworthy right yeah yeah well I, I, they, they've successfully turned the whole syria thing into just just let don't touch it yeah don't touch it yeah radioactive yeah, yeah. yeah. And even if you've never had a thing to say about it if it's if you've even countenanced that story yeah it's, it's, if you talk about some actual evidence yeah anyway uh that was great so th so th th thank you to aaron uh, uh and uh and we will see uh we'll see all of you next week and thanks to our producer dan halperin and to sheer mag who are the creators of the and performers of our great theme song the bigger pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment we're having a real conversation as real real estate investors new episodes available every day it's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to bigger pockets on the market rookie real estate or money podcast the purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets Podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.